0: practice going through the scriptures together and this morning that will continue will be in Matthew 26. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 26 as we look at that text together. As you turn to Matthew 26, I bet not many of you, if any of you, have heard the story of the Pamban Bridge in Tamil Nadu, India. This bridge in India today at that site, there is a picture there where that bridge is of a man who is weeping while holding the body of his child. The story of that bridge, excuse me, the picture is capturing a story of what took place at that bridge years ago. That man who's in the picture had a responsibility to raise the bridge in order that ships might be able to pass underneath, but then manually lower the bridge so that trains might pass overhead. And every day during his appointed time, this is what he did, as he rolled the wheel to lift and lower that bridge by hand. Once he saw a train slowly approaching, while he was pulling the back the bridge after a ship had just quietly passed underneath. He had to pull the, the, the wheel quickly in order to get the bridge to lower by the time the train arrived. If he did not do so, there would be a fatal accident and thousands of people would die. The problem is, at that time, his nine-year-old son came with lunch for his dad, who was turning that bridge. When the boy saw his father struggling with the wheels, moving as quickly as he needed to to lower it, the boy set down the lunchbox and started helping his dad to roll that wheel. Like any son wanting to help his dad, seeing his dad in need and wanting to help him. The problem, though, is suddenly the nine-year-old boy's finger got caught inside the wheel. He started crying out in pain as his hand was stuck. At that time, if the father tried to stop to save his son, the bridge could not be put back in time, and thousands of people on that train would die. The father had no other option in his mind but to ignore his son's cry. With all his strength, he kept on rolling the wheel down to lower the bridge And as the wheels rolled on, his son slowly started slipping away into the huge machine of the wheels of that cog. Tears rolled down his father's cheeks, but he ignored his son's cry. Because if he tried to save his son, the train would surely fall into the sea and thousands of people would die. Slowly, the boy's body fell into the machine. And the son was crushed to death. The train with thousands of passengers slowly rolled on the rails without ever knowing what actually happened there in order that they might live. The father lost his only loving son. With extreme pain and sorrow, he pulled his son's body from the machine and he held it close to his chest and just cried bitterly. And the picture of that moment and that sacrifice is by that bridge today to commemorate that Father's sacrifice. These types of sacrifices are heart wrenching, head turning. These types of sacrifices are, in one sense, inspiring, in another sense, confusing. Because most of us in this room here today in 2022, in the city of Miami, have never known of that kind of sacrifice. We've heard of it, as I've just shared it with you. We can read of it even in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. Well, this morning, in Matthew 26, we're going to see two lessons of Sacrifice. One of which we've already heard about in the previous months in the Gospel of Matthew. And one of which we're going to see and be new to us this morning. And the question that we're going to have to each answer for ourselves is what will we do? What will you do in light of what you learn this morning? Matthew 26 is our text. If I may, direct your attention to verse 1. Verse 1 When Jesus had finished all these sayings, referring to the Olivet Discourse of Matthew, chapter 24 and 25. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, And plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The first lesson we see in our text this morning of Matthew 26 comes to us in these first five verses. We see here in the text about the ultimate Passover. The ultimate Passover, just as a sense of bearings, these opening words in Matthew 26 where he says when Jesus had finished all these sayings is a common moniker, a common kind of subject change, if you will, in the gospel of Matthew. In fact, in the gospel of Mark, Mark commonly writes in a way that is using this term immediately and immediately and immediately. Within 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark Mark uses this term translated in the English this word immediately he is moving quickly through the life and teachings of Christ The similar type of organizational fashion Matthew in his writings throughout the 28 chapters every so often has a type of divisions to his writings that would be noticeable to the Jewish reader as they're reading these words for the first time and it's this expression and Chapter 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said it earlier in chapter 7, 28, and chapter 11, verse 1, and chapter 13, and again in chapter 19. So now he says to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. So we've moved from the future, as he talked about in chapter 24 and 25, to now the present and near future. It talks about this Passover. Now, many of you in this room, being in Miami perhaps being around a number of our neighbors who themselves identify as Jewish, are ethnically Jewish, you're familiar with the idea of Passover, but you might not be that familiar with it. And some of you being new to Christianity, maybe even today here, here to explore the Bible and hear teaching from the Bible, that you might examine these teachings for yourself. Let me just briefly explain the story of the Passover, because these readers at this time would understand it, and I want to make sure these people in this place today understand it as well. Because it's an important presupposition what Jesus is about to say. Passover goes back to what happened thousands of years ago in the country of Egypt. Thousands of years ago in the country of Egypt is where the Jewish people living in the land of Egypt, once enjoying prosperity, living alongside other Egyptians, over time became slaves. And that place and that time was built up because of the slavery that the Egyptians had over the Jewish people. And for, for centuries they'd cry out, hear us, hear our, pri- our cries, O God. And God did. He raised up a man named Moses and sent that man back into Egypt, having once himself being born into Egypt, then being an exodus, then coming back. And he comes and sends him back to Egypt that he might represent God's people on behalf of God to this ruler. He says, hey, you are to let God's people go. And Pharaoh kind of basically in modern day vernacular says, no way. Not a chance. Moses says, if you do not, there's going to be consequences. God's going to show himself to be great. And so it becomes a series of nine plagues, nine different miraculous works that take place in the lands of Egypt. Every single time to say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh Don't do this. There will be consequences if you disobey. Every single time, it looks like he's going to relent, and he does not. After nine plagues, Pharaoh is basically saying, over my dead body, this is going to happen. And God, through his servant Moses, is basically saying, actually, it won't be over your dead body. It'll be over the dead bodies of all the firstborn of the land. And on the eve of that night, before the angel of death comes, God tells his people, in order to be spared from the judgment that's about to take place upon this land, for him rebelling against me, him being Pharaoh, rebelling against the word of the Lord through his servant, Moses, he tells them, take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb and take the blood of that lamb and paint it, put it across the doorpost, the the threshold over your house and that, that way, when that is there, you will be spared. And throughout that terrible night, there's weeping in all of the land as everything from animals to people die. Except the people of God, the Jewish people. They are spared. The Passover. Where God passed over them and spared them from his judgment. And as they were then released into the wilderness and eventually moved into the promised land, every year on that anniversary, they would celebrate the Passover. Jesus, in this conversation, in Matthew chapter 26, is in Jerusalem, right outside of the city, in Jerusalem. They're about to have the annual Passover. Now, you have to understand what annual Passover means. Annual Passover is why the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the significance is that Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people would come back to Jerusalem in order to participate in animal sacrifices, in order to be reminded of God's grace in their life. And Jesus is saying here in Matthew 26, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, but then look at what he says next in verse 2 And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified the son of man not a local animal god himself the second member of the triune godhead god the son will be delivered this is not the first time that the disciples have heard this they have been told this continually of what it would be like back in chapter 20 uh, chapter 16 verse 21 He says that the son of man will be killed and on the third day be raised. Back in chapter 17, he said that they will kill him, will be raised on the third day. Back in chapter 20, he speaks about how he will indeed be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised up on the third day. This is on the eve of that occasion. In fact, the writers later, after the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, the writers, Paul, Peter, the author of Hebrews, would speak of the significance that Jesus, who spoke these words, who later did that work, was actually that Savior. Listen, if you would, and look at the screen, even in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 to 14 but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more imp- and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here's the question you and I have to answer. Where do you look, where do I look to have my sin, my rebellion, my rejection as shown in my conscience, as shown in the revelation of God's word, shown just in natural law around us as we see in creation, where do I look to find my atonement, my payment? What's shocking in the text is the contrast. Look at verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. What's so interesting is this understanding, Matthew says that they're plotting they're plotting in stealth, like secrecy. It's the kind of thing Jesus is like Jesus uh, like, no secret here, I've been telling people about this for years. I know exactly what's going to take place. He would say in his earthly ministry that the son lays down his life and takes it back up. It's so interesting to see the contrast of the disciples and in seemingly the most religiously educated people who missed it entirely. It's a concern for those who think they have peace with God today because of how knowledgeable they are of God's word, how many times they've been to church or gatherings, and or think of themselves as better than other immoral people around us in our city Jesus is pointing our attention to the ultimate Passover, the final one. Friends, where do you find your hope for peace with God? To find it in any other place than in Christ. To be sadly mistaken with eternal consequences, as we learned last week. This takes us now to the ultimate offering. The ultimate Passover, verses 1 to 5. Look at the ultimate offering, verses 6 and 7. Matthew, putting these stories together, says now in verse 6, Now when Jesus was at Bethany, Bethany's like a, a suburb, if you will, of Jerusalem, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and he poured it on his head, and excuse me, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. This is what's happening here in the text. This woman named Mary. Now, to kind of set the scene so you understand what's happening, because the same account is recorded in the Gospel of Mark as also in the Gospel of John. So we kind of get some color and some dimension added here. This is presumably Mary and Martha presumably throwing a party in light of the fact that Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and the host's sight is Simon the leper. Now, he apparently has at some point been healed of his leprosy, any kind of dermatological condition, any kind of skin disease, and there are numbers of them as referenced in the book of Leviticus. If you had any type of skin disease, any kind of skin deformity, you would have been labeled a leper, and you would be unclean. The last thing you are known for is Hospitality. But he has apparently been cleaned and and been cured, and apparently that's even been done perhaps by Jesus himself, since we have no other record of any type of cleansing like that, healing like that taking place. And his instinct is like, let's do a party. Sweet time, a gathering of people, celebrating potentially Lazarus' resurrection, which itself would be quite a story. And then you have the story of Mary. Now I don't know how many of you are familiar with fragrances. Some of the gentlemen here are, some of the ladies here are. Let me just explain to you briefly about fragrances so that you can kind of get a crash course and understand this. There's a spectrum of fragrances that you have. And it comes in candles, it comes in perfumes, it comes in colognes. You have sort of the the darker to the lighter. You have things like woods and and spices and and sort of musk-type scents. And you kind of move into the lighter scents, things like fruit and florals and ocean kind of scents. It's a spectrum And also, I don't know if you know this, when you go to buy cologne or buy perfume, there's like degrees of intensity. In fact, there's like the oudu, if you will, sort of oudu de uh, cologne. That's the lowest form. There's oudu de toilette, which is not the toilet some of you are thinking about. And then there's the oudu perfume. And so the difference there is it's the intensity, the percentage of the amount of oil. So you want something that smells the strongest. You can oudu perfume. You want to supersize it. You can oudu perfume intense. The most amount of oils, which also costs the most amount of money, just in case you're wondering. You know this because you can sometimes spray cologne on yourself and then, like, an hour later, you don't smell it, or perfume, like, don't smell it. Well, no offense, it's because you got the cheap stuff. We don't judge you, it's okay. Eau de perfume de intense, that's next level. What we have here in the text. Is Mary taking a container, an alabaster container, which if the fact that this stuff, this ointment, this perfume, the fact that this was in an alabaster container speaks to its value. You know, we kind of look at like nice perfume, nice clone, kind of like we're sometimes just taken back by the bottle it's in. Alabaster is this this great material it's in, and she takes it. And we learn in the gospel of Mark, she breaks it. She's all in. She pours it on his head. You see in the Gospel of John, she also pours it on his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Significance of this is profound. Mark and John tell us the value of this is about 300 denarii. What is that to you? That's about 10 months of an annual salary. 10 months. Let's put that in practical numbers for you. You make $50,000 a year, this is you taking $41,000 of your money and pouring it out on Jesus. You make $100,000 a year, this is you taking $83,000 of that money and pouring it out on Jesus. This woman is showing the ultimate offering. The amount of sacrifice that she is making. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, how distorted the interpretation of this is. How foolish this appears to be. But right here in this moment, right here in these two verses, I don't want you to miss some things because they're right in front of us. And if you're to miss them, you're to miss the heart of what Matthew's trying to capture. For every single one of the followers of Christ, even sitting here this morning, number one, as far as the characteristic of worship, number one, worship is costly. Worship is costly. Does your worship of God cost you something? We've talked about this before as a church. A lot of times people want a God where worshiping him is convenient. It doesn't cost you anything. Secondly, we see what she does here. Worship is fully committed. She is fully committed. It's not like she's pouring a little bit out and keep a little bit further. It says in gospel, she breaks the thing. It's, it's done. She's all in. She's all in. Third the characteristic of worship is that it's christ focused she has the object her motivation is not what others or people will think of her in fact she knows what's about to happen presumably culturally to anoint some of the head with some of the oil okay that's a good hospitality but to pour all this out and then to go the next step and to wash his feet with her hair as it says in the gospel of john that's going to be a scandal She is not thinking about her reputation. She is thinking about being focused on Christ. She is Christ focused. And fourth, she therefore is willing to be criticized, thought of by others to be a fool. I think sometimes as Christians, we're tempted to try to maintain our reputation and our allegiance to Christ. We want to be thought of as reasonable. Responsible, intelligent, kind, engaging, winsome. But just to be quite clear, friends, if you believe that this book, Holy Bible, so it means holy book. If you believe that this book is actually written by God, men, as it says in 2 Peter, moved along by the Spirit, written by God. That this is the inspired, comes from God, inerrant, without any error in it authoritative, whatever God says we should listen to, sufficient, it's enough for us to live in godliness, and clear, we don't have to wonder the mystery, we can know what it says. If you believe that and you live like that, you will be disrespected in this world sooner or later. Known as a hate speech person, perhaps, unintelligent, unscientific, unloving. And perhaps... Surprisingly, even some in the church would just say, You need to dial back that Jesus juice thing you got going on. Okay? Kind of making the rest of us look a little over the top. And I was, I've been working hard on my reputation. And I feel like if I bring you into the mix, you're going to make me not look as good as I've been trying to. Because I got a PR image I'm kind of building here. Mary could care less, she doesn't care. Because with Christ, that's all she cares about. That's all she cares about. And I'm here just by way of encouragement to say, to, as a pastor to many of you, how encouraged I am that many of you, not all of you, but many of you, I know firsthand are living like this. I just heard even this morning of one of our people who just by the sheer gravity of his conviction as believing the Bible, Just his conviction, he believes the Bible, is being moved out of management because his presence with his employees underneath him cannot stand him and are calling him discriminatory. Because just the strength of his conviction that he believes this is God, and that makes them feel so uncomfortable, they want to mute his presence by removing him from the actual site in which they work together. He's pouring it out for the Lord. Trust the Lord to provide for his future. Others of you pouring out, you're making selective decisions and how you are being devoted to Christ with your time, with your money, with your commitments, with your relationships, with the decisions you make. Our friends, let me just challenge those of us who still have room to grow here. There's a contrast and I want you to see the contrast. Go back to Matthew 26. Look at what the disciples say. Mary's all in, but verse 8: When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, whatever this gospel, excuse me, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This takes us to our third lesson, the ultimate promise. Ultimate Passover, verses one to five, the ultimate offering, verses six and seven, and now the ultimate promise, verses eight to thirteen. What a contrast, right? He would think the disciples are like, okay, we get it. A little humbled, she beat us to it. I got here's what I got in my pockets. You can have it all. Here's what I have in my tunic, it's all yours. I'm with her. Instead, they're like, What is she thinking? Now, John gives us more detail in the Gospel of John. In fact, this perspective is actually verbally said by, of all people, Judas, a character we're going to meet in a couple of weeks here in the next part of the text. And Judas, who says this, but behind the virtue of caring for the poor, he's actually thinking about himself. Matthew just simply kind of represents the whole group, and the reality that apparently, even though Judas said it in John, we see in the book of Matthew, they're all thinking, now the reason this is humbling, because who writes this? Matthew. Matthew. Like, if Matthew's committed to a PR image, I'm going to say, like, okay, so um, Peter and um, John and Judas, these guys. Instead, he says, the disciples. He puts himself in there. He's one of these 12. He's like, we all missed it. We all missed it. We all had to be corrected again by our patient Savior. And here's how we missed it. We were so uncomfortable with what she did, we grabbed hold of virtue and said, this could have been given to the poor. Now what Jesus says is fascinating here because he makes a statement, the poor you will always have with you. What's he talking about? He's talking about a good reminder even for us today that while we should show compassion and care, We should recognize suffering and needs. There can be a misguided ambition at best, aspiration at worst, that we can somehow eradicate all of that. You're not gonna eliminate poverty by selling possessions and giving it away, Jesus is saying. We should care within our capacity for those hurting, but we should realize we're never gonna get rid of suffering, rid of pain, rid of poverty. And said we were to minister to people in the middle of it. And the good news that Jesus is directing attention to is that the good news of Jesus is to be preached. You see the care there, the transition? So look at the transitioner. They're saying, hey, we're worried about the poor. We're about the poor. He's like, you really want to worry about the poor? Then let the gospel be proclaimed. Not just those who are poor on earth, but poor spiritually around the earth. Care for everybody's poverty, not just what you can see with your own eyes. And then he makes this promise that this woman, Mary, will be commemorated. And here we are today, commemorating her. Here we are today saying, wow, Mary, wow. Like an older sister in Christ from generations before our time, wow. Seeing your example, I am convicted to want to do more of that in my own life. Wow, Mary, as I think about the good news of Jesus, you're reminding me that Jesus is worth it. Even by my own brothers and sisters in Christ, you might think I'm a fool at times, that it is worth it to lay it all down for Jesus. Here's the question that you and I have to answer. How does your life tell the story of the ultimate Passover? How does your life tell the story of the ultimate sacrifice? How do your actions tell the story of the ultimate savior? God does not accept you because you do more good works than you've done before. God does not accept you because you pledge and promise to keep that promise to give away more money than you have before. God accepts you because you recognize that Mary recognizes, which is Jesus of Nazareth was the savior. And I put my faith in him and in him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. Friend, is that, is that your heart? Is that your desire? I mean, this reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. He wants to be at the Philippian church. He can't get with them. He's held back. Why? Well, because he happens to be in jail. He's like, I strive to be with you, but if I can't get to you, may I hear that you are of one body, one mind, one spirit, one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friend, let us learn from each other how to love one another, how to sacrifice for the Savior, how to tell the story of a crucified and resurrected Son of God that sins have been paid for, atonement has been granted, ransom has been paid. And to remember that, God gives us not only his word, but in his word he also gives us a reminder in the Lord's Supper. This morning we have the opportunity to participate in the Lord's Supper together. If you're new to Grace Church, this is our practice to do on the first Sunday usually of every month. This is an opportunity to really kind of in keeping with what we say at Grace Church. Grace Church, we would say kind of jokingly and kind of as a tongue-in-cheek that we are boringly biblical. We sing the Word, read the Word, pray the Word, preach the Word, and desire to obey the Word. Starting first with baptism, if we profess faith in Christ. And the Lord's Supper, as we reunite back together as those who are children of God by faith in Christ. And to obey the Word in the days ahead and our times apart from one another in corporate worship. Now, for those of you who don't understand the Lord's Supper, let me just be very clear. Maybe some of you have grown up in a different tradition, a different religious tradition, where it's unknown to you, or some of you perhaps grew up in a Catholic tradition. Let me just spell out very clearly what the Lord's Supper is and what it is not. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance. It's a command God gives to God's people to participate in it as an opportunity to be reminded Christ has been crucified, buried, and resurrected, and has promised to come back for them again. It's also a reminder of our own testimony. In fact, the Lord's Supper is a time of both reflection for the purpose of self-examination and celebration to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm so glad for you to be here with us and hear this and even see this. But this Lord's Supper, when this tray is about to pass or these opportunities around you are put in front of you, I would just say let this pass and just take the time to just think. Think about what you've heard. Think about what you've sung. Think about what's been read and ask yourself where you're putting your hope in. If you are a Christian but you knowingly are living in sin, Right, and you, you need to deal with that first, the Lord says in First Corinthians 11. "Do not come to the table, he says, in an unworthy manner. For those who do, bring judgment upon even themselves. So we say here, knowingly, if you have been baptized as a Christian, not because that makes you a Christian, because it's a sign of obedience, and you continue by faith to walk in obedience, not perfectly. But humbly and repentingly, as you're aware of any areas of disobedience, you come back to the Lord to be reminded of Christ's work for you on the cross and your identity with others, then participate in this. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.